If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of If I Ran the Bank. And regardless of when you're listening to today's episode, this, in fact, was the first one we ever recorded, the Maiden Voyage uh, pilot episode of the podcast. And for that special occasion, I got the, I was going to say the most prestigious guest we could get, but certainly the only person that would say yes to be on a podcast that doesn't yet exist, which is my uh, partner and boss, uh, Lisa Shields, the CEO of Fispan. Lisa, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. So for the audience at home, can you tell us you know, a little bit more about who you are and uh, what, what you do? Sure. So my name is Lisa Shields, and I am the founder and CEO of a company called Fispan, which is based in Vancouver, British Columbia. And we are as of October 2020, just over four years into a journey of helping treasury banks enable ERP and accounting systems as a servicing channel. Awesome. And what, um, what led you to this, this journey, I guess, the five-span journey? Yeah, so I started my financial services career, I guess, about 21 years ago in payments helping a you know an early online merchant process credit cards from a technology perspective early in my career as an engineer and i fell in love with payments simply because i saw so many problems with it and went on to found my first company which is a global low value b2c company called hyperwallet that was purchased by paypal in 2018 HyperWallet serviced the gig economy for large multinationals, and we competed against banks and really checks and sold into the treasury department and accounting department at these corporates. And in the course of running that business and talking to my customers, I really came to realize that bank products and services, you know, underlying payment rails, underlying and cash management and loan services really are at a competitive advantage in terms of their product capabilities vis-a-vis and with respect to what an independent full-stack fintech might be able to offer. But these same products and services that the main treasury banks are offering their corporate and business customers are at a massive disadvantage with respect to the customer experience that they can you know, support. And so after my first you know, liquidity um, exit from HyperWallet, I really took some time to think about the state of play of you know, banks versus fintechs, APIs, open banking. And I thought there was a real opportunity in the market to take the best of what banks have, these underlying capabilities, and enable it with new channels 
and new software experiences to add on those delightful user experiences and accessibility. And that's what we're aiming to do with Fispan. Totally makes sense. And I think that probably leads into to the big ideas that we're going to talk about in a minute. But I'm curious, um, because of that arc, the, your kind of historical experience, what 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 was different about I mean, that would have been very pioneering to be a direct-to-consumer, whether that was, was retail or, or commercial consumer of HyperWallet in its various stages in, you know, 2000, 2001, being a direct-to-consumer fintech, you know, competing with, trying to collaborate with the incumbent financial institutions. How, does that, how did that feel then versus how it feels today? Well, you know, mm-hmm. is the tenor of the market different or, you know, is the vibe different? How would you characterize that? Yeah, it's a complete sea change. So the tenor of the market and the vibe is 180 degrees different. Certainly at the turn of the century, uh, you know, there were quote unquote full stack fintechs starting to compete primarily for retail uh, customers, but also starting on, you know, business payments, foreign exchange has always been competitive and has always, um, you know, in, involved fintechs sitting on top of bank services and relying on banks for network access, yet competing with banks for the last mile, in other words, the customer-facing application. And, you know, if I, if I wanted to answer the question explicitly, I would say in the year 2000, there was an actual antagonistic relationship between fintechs and banks um, and, you know, there was all sorts of security and underlying, you know, business model reasons for that. Over the last two decades, that's really changed. And what we see is an absolute collaborative um, attitude by both parties. What I can say hasn't changed is notwithstanding collaborative attitude, there are still underlying you know, market realities that make it difficult for banks and fintechs to partner, you know, both regulatory risk um, you know, and business model. So the attitudes have changed. It's still taking a while for the reality of those attitudinal change to uh, you know, manifest itself in actual great solutions for customers. And I guess not to steal the thunder from what I, what I think you're going to talk about next, but what's the biggest headwind to that change? Is it, you know, I guess regulation and the regulatory environment could be one of those vectors, the competitive environment, just the kind of inertia of the, the cultures of the banks, um, even if their kind of attitudes have changed, not, not knowing how to execute against these new operating models or digital or whatever it might be. What, what do you think the biggest headwind still is in that? Well, I'll answer it a different way. The biggest tailwind is customer expectation, right? So customers are demanding it. And so, you know, banks and third parties are really working hard to figure it out. Um, So that's the tailwind that absolutely is driving change. The headwind is, in my view, the existing infrastructure and mode of engagement between banks and vendors, that there's a really excruciating process to becoming onboarded as a vendor and actually partnering and touching bank systems and bank customers. And, you know, at Fispan, we power through that 
and other fintechs are starting to power through that, but it still you know, is only for the funded and the already successful. It really still acts as an impediment between a bank trying things out with smaller, earlier stage uh, fintech partners. Totally get that. And it creates a bit of an impasse. So on that note, with that, if that's the kind of context, and I don't think any of that would be controversial to anyone listening right now, what would you do if you were, you know, if you were sitting in the big chair, or you, you know, you took over a bank tomorrow, what, where would you put a stake in the ground, right, in terms of investing your time, your money, your focus as the bank to take advantage of or, or be first in and best dressed on this as there is a, a culture change industry wide or as you anticipate this culture change to kind of accelerate? So if I ran the bank, the first thing I would do wouldn't be so much around trying to change my vendor engagement process. I think that that will happen. But if I ran the bank from the 30,000 foot view, what I would immediately do is double down um, and have everybody in my organization aligned on the inevitability of embedded banking as being the primary service channel for customers. And what I mean by that is the future is banking as a part of another digital experience or another digital activity. Banking is part of buying a house, doing a B2B transaction, having a new trade partner. It's not the activity in and of itself. And so what I think is an inevitable is that the primary point of service for banking and financial products won't be a bank's application or a bank's branch or a bank's mobile app um, or even necessarily the bank's direct APIs. I think that understanding as you know the CEO of a bank that this is going to be the future and plotting about how I can actually still stay engaged with my customers and have them value me and my brand is where I would point my organization. That's interesting, interesting perspective. And do you think that that is relevant across all of the segments that a bank might operate? If we think about, you know, retail versus wealth versus, you know, commercial and ultimately kind of wholesale and investment banking type activities? I do. I think that it starts with retail. Um, you know, the innovation starts at retail and the demand starts with retail experiences, but the um, evolution of it and the marching towards that being a truism across all areas of the bank is inevitable and it's coming faster rather than slower. Um, you know, we're seeing examples of this with, you know, Amazon starting to embed financial services within its experience. And that's, those are easy ones that people can point to and, you know, argue either side of the coin. That that's a specific, uh, you know, it's a specific example around a dominant brand on e-commerce. Um, but what I see as not necessarily the unbundling, but personalization, rather than personalization being manifested itself through a bank trying to collect more and more data and offer directly more and more personalized experiences. I believe that personalization of financial services consumption will arise through 
the delivery of financial services through increasingly personalized set of applications and experiences, not through a broader initiative of the bank itself. That makes sense. And that's a, a question I was going to ask was, you know, what idea or concept do you think is over-invested? And I think you just tipped your hand that personalization is is it. I was going to ask you why. I think you just hinted at why, though, too. So let, let me maybe try and paraphrase and see if this plays back to you. Is your argument effectively that, because there's no doubt that banks have invested heavily on personalization, right? And there's this recommendation widgets and these things on, on the home pages and there's all this activity. Your, your argument is almost the exact opposite. That is, people are effectively going to self-personalize their experience by selecting or hiring this whole series of products and services to do whatever they want them to do. And thus, the bank's job is to make the bank run well with this kind of personalized tool set of apps or, or whatever I want to use as the consumer, as opposed to trying to somehow and probably badly personalize my bank-owned channel to somehow be better or more relevant to Lisa Shields than it is to you know Clayton and his experience. So that's exactly right. That's exactly my point. I'm not saying that that's going to be easy to do, but if you if you accept that that's the way of the future, then you start to look at your own properties as the fallback. In other words, you know, the analogy of the branch, we walk into the physical branch today when we have some, um, you know, long tail activity that we can't complete through online banking. Um, you know, loss of ID, loss of credential, we need to go in and see someone face to face. The online property of the bank will become that equivalent in the future. And that's when I have some issue with some activity I tried to conduct through some other channel. That's when I visit your digital property. So I think the challenge is to figure out how to accept this embedded service delivery through applications and properties and experiences that I as the bank don't directly control yet still imbue um, my brand, my brand promise, and the enrichment of my relationship with my customers through those not-on-me experiences. And that's where I would focus my research dollars and my partnership prioritizations. So, I mean, that being said, it, it totally makes sense as a strategy, but if I mean, if I'm sitting on the, you know, in the boardroom and you come to me with this as the bank, if I do all this work to become embedded, to become more seamless in all these digital experiences, right? If I become part of just what the user's trying to, to get done, by losing all that friction, I lose a lot of my touch points as, as a bank, right? So that's my first pushback. But do you think I lose any of my share of the customer relationship? Do you think I lose any of my kind of margin in that that value chain or those kinds of things? Like, what's the, is there a dark side to this? And is that true for all banks, right? Are all banks going to be able to thrive in this? So I'm not speaking for all banks. I'm speaking for the bank I'm running. Um, so I do think that there's room to differentiate on strategy. And some banks may choose to, you know, compete on price. And certain, you know, I'm going to be a wholesale bank. That's how I'm going to, you know, that, that's how I'm going to compete. And I'm going to um, go deep on that. 
um, versus you know some you know existing large banks and and banks with significant existing footprints. I don't think that it's a necessary truism that by embedding I've lost my relationship with my customer and I've lost my opportunity to have a unique and full relationship with that customer outside and in addition to um, the embedded service delivery touch point. So what I mean by that is if we use that example of Amazon, I might choose as a consumer to adopt an Amazon card product or loan product because I'm a, you know, a small business vendor on Amazon and I get value out of that. That doesn't necessarily mean it, that is going to be my only or indeed my dominant financial service relationship for that business or my life cycle. And I think you know everybody will say this. I do actually believe it. It's the trust relationship that's going to be stronger with my financial um, institution than it is with any one service that I choose to use for convenience. So I think that by accepting and embracing personalized delivery through third-party apps and looking at any one of those touch points as an opportunity to engage with my customer but show them that my ability as a financial institution to continue my position of trust with their data, with their money across multiple touch points is what's going to anchor that customer to my institution longer term. And what I think you can do, um, the other point I wanted to make if I run the bank, is my people and my digital assets don't become lost in this or even subordinated in this new world. They become more important as a matter of fact. And so what I would do if I ran the bank is I would use this COVID interlude. Everybody has gotten used to digital human engagement. And so if I ran the bank, what I would do is I would repurpose my customer-facing assets, i.e. my people, um, and digitize them in their role to provide product and service stewards. And I would figure out how to embed my most useful asset, which is my people, inside those digital experiences offered by others. You know, easy example, if, you know, I've got an embedded, an embedded loan product inside some other experience um, or an embedded loan offer, make it super easy either within that experience to you know conjure up uh, a friendly bank representative or you know using my own direct channels with my customers invite them in a really simple and engaging way in near real time to engage with the bank separately or in as a companion to the experience that I have ongoing and they're easy technologies that exist today to make that happen. I think the challenge is to figure out and quickly convert my people from primarily being delivered through face-to-face -face interactions to figuring out how I can deliver my people 
primarily through digital interaction. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I think there's there's a lot of things a bank would have to do on a, a operating model basis to evolve the, the way they do human servicing to, to be, you know, federated out into all these different ecosystems that the, that the bank is now going to participate in. And I think that's an interesting challenge and probably, but probably better put it as a really interesting opportunity, I think, for the banks that are going to be smart about that part of it. One more kind of question about this embedded idea, something that strikes me as a challenge is, at least when I kind of sit with bankers, sometimes the fact that they have to support the, you know, the iOS app and the Android app concurrently as two releases is, is you know, one, if not two more applications than they'd like. But in, in this universe that, you know, with the picture you're painting, the number of places where a bank might be present or, or need to be supported is effectively infinite, right? And so to put it the opposite way, in your Amazon example, or if you're Shopify, the, you know, where I'm actually performing the primary operational task for this, you know, small business or for this individual, these places I want to remove friction are obvious to me, right? Because I'm really close to my customer. And I know that, you know, once, uh, you know, my little e-commerce merchant gets paid, what they want to then do next with that money has a bunch of pain points. And, and that's why I do, you know, Shopify banking or whatever their initiative is. But from the bank's perspective, it's almost the opposite. The number of, you know, jobs to be done that they would want to embed into third-party applications, which ecosystems they would want to support first, um, I don't know how you would sit down and try and prioritize that or even what a bank would need to do at a foundational level, level to be able to support a number of those things at scale. So if I run the bank, I wouldn't have the answer to every problem. <laughs> um, I would be setting the direction. Uh, but what I can say is uh, I wouldn't try and solve that problem. I really would embrace openness first and foremost and let the market expose itself. And what I would double down on is only owning the intersection, uh, owning the user experience in one place um, and owning that user experience when it comes to authorization, authentication, and control of the places my customer wants to make my service available. So the example you use of, Sh of Shopify versus Amazon, do I really want to you know, pay a team of MBAs and then get, you know, the get Boston Consulting in to tell me that my MBAs were wrong and that they've got better MBAs as to which of these, you know, 10 small business, um, you know, digital commerce platforms I really want to prioritize integrating with. My approach would be not to do that, would be to uh, aim my resources at how I could allow any or all of them to be uh, chosen by my customers whilst I still provided that control and risk management service easily to my customers. In other words, I would have an, as open as possible an API program that was underpinned by a rock-solid application that I control that lets my customers pick and choose where they want my services to be available. That makes sense. I know a shared belief that we have is kind of the foundational five-span thesis is that brands, banks have great brands in, in a high-level sense, right? They have this remarkable trust and, and equity in these brands and great, you know, relationships. And, and regardless of what people say about, you know, being mad at the bank at any given minute, they're 
always in the future going to want to do business with those those banks, right? Um, they they sit in a really privileged position in the competitive stack. I I think that what you're alluding to and and your thesis is that in the digital world, how do you replicate or take advantage of that same position that the banks have, right? How do in a world where it's bits, you know, and not not atoms that are kind of moving, what would a bank do to be the central trusted, you know, kind of arbiter of where your data should move or um, what these applications should be able to do or, or not on your behalf? And I, I think that that, in, from your worldview, is, is something, again, that's probably underthought of and underinvested from, from a bank's perspective. I would actually say it a little bit differently. I don't think it's the job, the job or role of the bank to be the arbiter of where it should be. I think it should be the job and role of the bank to let me as the customer decide where it should be, but that I should always feel that the bank has my back, so to speak. Um, and the bank has my back with respect to, you know, it's watching this, it's layering on its great big AI risk management around things that look dodgy, but it's also proactively putting me in a position of control over my data and the transactions that I undertake. So in other words, just bringing it down from that 10,000 foot view rosy picture to where I would put my uh, engineering and product dollars it would be around building a model that was distributable on customer authentication, customer authorization in real time and on a per transaction level, even when embedded, and a property that I manage and channels I directly have with my customers to communicate and checkpoint with them around the various services they're using from various third parties um, and, you know, give them an opportunity and periodic review, control, shaping of that, that to me, you know, uh, increases the trust and brand equity that I have with my customers. Totally makes sense. And on that note, do you, do you think that there is a bank or banks out there today that are remotely close to that front like do you, do you think there's a pioneer that's 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 way out ahead in terms of this modern authentication and authorization hub for kind of third-party applications that that might want to communicate to the bank i can't point to any bank that i see doing it um you know in different countries you see different initiatives in partnerships with banks around identity uh, identity sharing you know here in canada we have a number of the big banks um, on the retail level, you know, allowing you to share tax data automatically um, and log in and get government services um, where your identity is underpinned by a bank-given credential. But what I haven't seen is that concept um, married with a truly open API program run by the bank and a true, you know, OAuth control center provided by the bank. Um, I know that JP Morgan Chase in you know, Chase.com in the United States has announced some partnerships in that regard um, on the retail side, but I haven't seen them in practice. I think we'll start to see some embodiments of these over the next two years. 
So just on that note, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of parallels between everything you're talking about and open banking in a general sense will, you know, on the podcast have and will uh, beat this up with a ton of different guests in the open banking world. But can you just maybe differentiate um, for someone listening the idea of where kind of embedded banking, how it relates to the concept of open banking? They're obviously similar, but but different. So embedded banking is made better by open banking, but not reliant upon it. A bank can uh, make individual or many partnerships through embedded banking, like the kind that Fispan supports, without necessarily having a true open banking program. I define open banking as anybody can come and join the developer program at the bank and get access to meaningful financial services and offer them up to its offer them up to customers without a bank explicitly ticking the box saying yes versus no. Where we are today and what Fispan offers to banks is explicit integrations with explicit platforms, i.e. accounting systems and ERPs, where the bank explicitly says, yes, I want to offer a treasury service embedded in NetSuite or Microsoft 365, uh, not and at, you know, a Microsoft 365 developer just ad hoc developing its own application. So if open banking was mandated, anybody could develop an app. Um, embedded banking is made you know, more fulsome through open banking, but isn't reliant upon it. I think that's a, a great clarification. Um, so... Just shifting gears, and I mean, if you you have any more kind of oh by the ways on, on what we discussed, you can you can jump in now. But if not, I'll maybe just shift gears to a, a couple fun kind of closing questions. Uh oh. But I'm just curious for those everyone listening at home. It's kind of a joint question. So what what was your first uh, job that you ever had before you were a high powered fintech CEO? My first paid job was scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins. Wow. I got very fat. You got high on high on your own supply, which is that's the fir- first rule. <laughs> Uh, Channel stuffing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that was good for the quarter. So that sounds like a fun job. And so what about, what was the moment that you knew? I know you talked a little bit about like becoming a a payments nerd, but what what was the moment you knew that you were all in on the kind of payments and financial services space? Oh, that's a great question. Well, you're all in once you found a company and take other people's money is like the practical truth is that's when you're all in on making a business a success. When I was all in on payments was well before I actually started any company. It literally was when everybody understands payments from the perspective of I put my credit card in, magic happens, I get a bill, I pay it, you know, all the rest of it. But I was all in when I saw the payments value chain laid out in front of me when I understood that a merchant goes through an ISO to an, you know, an acquiring processor to the merchant bank, to the network, to the issuing processor, to the issuing bank, to the issuing ISO, to the um, program manager. And when you see that value chain, and this is just on one particular payments flow, and you really scratch your head and you think, I can't believe it's that complicated. I can make it better. And this is how every entrepreneur, I, th- I believe a lot of entrepreneurs, jump into payments because you think that's so complicated, that's so dumb, I can make it better. 
and you don't realize, you know, you don't let ignorance, uh, you know, stand in the way of um, enthusiasm. So I became all in on payments when I saw how complex it was and saw how fascinating, you know, the, the interplay between these various players were. On that note, do you think there's a day where that won't be true, where the, the material problem, the, you know, the big problems will have been materially solved in the payment space, where it'll kind of work roughly as it should or could? I do. I think it'll get better, but I, don't, I think that some of the players um, will go away, you know, especially the quote-unquote bad ones that add cost without really adding any value to end customers. If you believe, you know, Google and Apogee and you, um, you know, go to certain trade conferences and hear that in the future when everything is real time and all there will be is deposit accounts and software. So that's, that's the party line um, of um, certain pundits in the industry that, you know, that, the need for a card association and an intermediary and a network and a network processor, those are all threatened business models once everything is real time. So software will, this is a version in financial services and in payments of software will eat the world. I don't believe that um, software will negate the, you know, the business opportunities for interlinking networks and recognized brands. Um, and recognize schemes. Uh, so, so that's my answer. Um, I think it'll get better. Um, I think software will help the world. Um, I think real-time payments and account-to-account account will make things um, like business models that are predicated on delays in payments to provide things like working capital advances and you know um, invoice advances. Some of the uh, less savory business models around those, I think, will will be challenged and will go away. But fundamentally, networks, global networks, um, interlinking different jurisdictions and different regulatory environments will always mean that there's a place in the world for some um, incumbents. Totally agree. Um, and just on a closing note, what's the uh, dumbest thing you've ever done that later turned out to be a great idea? If you hadn't asked the that later turned out to be a great idea part, that would have been an easy question. Um, was that was that hi was hiring me going to be the answer? <laughs> um, actually, that hadn't sprung to mind. Uh, and it's, uh, let me let me consider that. No, that still ends up on the cutting room floor. Um, the dumbest thing I ever did that later turned out to be a great idea was reuse the existing payment rail for um, something that had never been intended to do. And so, you know, sat on top of a credit push transaction called bill payment and enabled bill payments to do person-to-person -person transactions, which I thought was a very clever uh, party trick. And then it turned out to be incredibly dumb because it created like antagon antagonism between my FinTech and the banks and the banks all turned us off. So that's the very dumb part. So I had a business model that got turned off and completely shut down by banks. Why it turned out to be the greatest thing I did is it forced me to understand the underlying risk model of financial institutions and actually design a process that was 
you know, mindful of them. So, sorry, it's a long story, but I want to give it, make it particular. Building on top of existing capabilities in a way that was never anticipated by the architects of those systems. So in my case, it was building on top of bill payments to enable person-to-person -person transactions. That created hate by banks. A new example of that isn't my business model, but think of like the plaid infinities of the world that started out by scre screen scraping in order to offer their aggregation services. That could be told as like, that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard of because it creates antagonism and they're going to get turned off. But it does turn out to be a smart thing because down the line, it leads the way on what is the art of the possible. I think that's a, absolutely a great and probably evergreen lesson for financial services innovation. So no, I appreciate that. Um, awesome. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time to record this uh, with me. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the, the audience is, I hope you all enjoy this as much as I enjoyed or we enjoyed recording it. Um, and just thanks again for your time, Lisa. Yes, yeah, pleasure. Hope to see you um, when you're rich and famous. Don't forget about the little people that helped you get there. <laughs> I won't. Um, awesome. Well, uh, thanks again. And, uh, thanks. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye.